welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Well, good morning. We're in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, beginning in verse 11. And the title of the, the message this morning, United in Christ. And this is going to be a, a theme that Paul has through from this section on into uh, chapter 4. And so as we look this morning, uh, beginning there in verse 11, to really be able to understand what Paul is, uh, is talking about, we need to have some understanding of the context of the Jews and the Gentiles and the division that they had with each other. But these truths are not only in, important for them in their time, uh, it is very important for us because we have the same kind of problems today. Uh, their only hope is also our only hope, uh, hope for unity and peace in reality is only found in Christ Jesus. Let's, let's read together uh, these first three verses from chapter 2, verse 11 to 13. Uh, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would just help us. You would just guide us in your word and open Open your word to our hearts and minds that we may hear and understand, Father, and have a heart to, to obey. We thank you for uh, this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you go back uh, to, to the Old Testament, you realize that this distinction between the Jews and Gentiles was something that God created. Um, man in his sin, of course, had corrupted God's uh, design, but... It was nevertheless God's design and plan to set the nation of Israel apart from the rest of the world. And God called Abraham out of the, the pagan life of the Ur of the Chaldeans and gave promises to him and, and made this specific promise of the Abrahamic covenant to him. In Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, you'll remember this, this promise and this covenant that God first spoke to Abraham, he says uh, in chapter 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So from Abraham would come this Jewish nation or people. And God had set them apart so that through them he would prepare the way and send the Messiah, who would be not only a savior for the Jewish people, but for all families of the earth. 
And so God had this plan to provide the way that man could know him, the, the way in which man could be reconciled to God, and that ultimately there would be one people of God united in Christ. But there was so much to overcome for this to happen. Uh, it would seem impossible. And if you looked at the first century uh, situation and the divisions there at that time when Christ was born and began his ministry, you, you would say it is impossible. But in reality, God is the God of the impossible. And he and his great power will accomplish all that he has purposed to do. Uh, if you go back into chapter 1, uh, look with me there from verse 7, you'll see that he's talked about this plan already. And let's just begin reading in verse 7. He says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. That's verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. And so this is God's, God's plan that we will one day experience uh, with him that all things will be united in Christ. There'll be no more divisions. There'll be no more calls for peace or unity. We will be one in him. Notice in our text in verse 11, he begins by saying, therefore, and uh Remember, as we see the, these therefore in the scripture, we need to stop and ask the question, what is it there for? As we look at this context, you realize he's referring back to what he has been teaching in chapter 2. Uh, in the beginning there from verse 1 down through verse 10, he's talked about this, uh, what God has done for us in salvation. And he, and he calls upon us to remember, and he's calling upon these uh, these Gentiles uh, to remember what they were and who they were before they were saved. Uh, he, he calls upon them to remember their hopeless condition, their hopeless situation before uh, when they were without Christ. Let's read again verse 11. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, it may not be immediately evident to us what Paul is talking about, but these believers knew exactly what he was saying because they had lived in this ethnic and religious division between the Jews and the Gentiles. You see, God had given circumcision uh, to Abraham as a sign of the covenant promise to him and his descendants. They were to be set apart unto God because God is holy and his people were to represent that distinction from, from all the other peoples and their pagan ideas uh, about God. And so the children of Israel were not only to have this physical sign of circumcision, but more importantly, they were to have what God called a circumcision of the heart. 
Deuteronomy 10, uh, Paul, uh, Moses is admonishing the, the children of Israel before they go into the promised land. Verse 16, he says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, and the Lord of lords, the great and the mighty, and the awesome God. But as you know from the history, the Jewish nation was a stubborn and rebellious people. But they're not alone. <laughs> We're all a stubborn and rebellious people. It's part of our sinful nature. You remember in Acts chapter five, uh, chapter seven, uh, Stephen, and he's giving a uh, an accounting of himself before the Sanhedrin, this Jewish council, the Jewish leaders, and he and he recounts the history of the nation of Israel and their disobedience to God, their rebellion. And then in verse 51, he, he turns to them or, or addresses them in this way, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. It's no wonder they were so angry with him that they, they stoned him to death. There's the problem. The, the problem wasn't in the, the physical sign. Of circumcision. The problem was that the lack of circumcision of the heart, a lack of, of dedication to God. They were doing all the outward things right, but they were far, far from God in their hearts. So God had blessed the Jews and given them access to God through the priesthood and the sacrificial system. But it, instead of being humble, humbled by this great mercy of God and the grace of God that they had received, they became proud. Proud of who they were. They were the, the circumcised. They were the people of God. Aren't we prone to the same kind of pride? Having received so much from God, we should be a humble people. And yet we can easily look down on others in pride because they're not where we are. They don't know what we know. They don't have what we have. So when we look at the first century, this context of the time of Christ. Uh, coming and beginning his ministry. The only way that a Gentile could come to God was to be circumcised and follow the Jewish rituals of the sacrificial system. In other words, they would become a Jewish proselyte. But even then, they were considered by the Jews to be second class at best. There was a, there was a court for the Gentiles where they could worship from a, a distance in the temple temple area. They were outside of that, and there was a, there was a, a wall uh, that separated where they could go. And there was a sign that's been found that basically warned them that it's your fault if you die because you go past this wall, go past this point. And even the Samaritans, remember, who were partially Jew, were probably hated even more. Uh, and the Jews would go around, they would go on a detour to bypass their city. And so there was all of this history of animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles. Jews in pride looked down on the Gentiles and in derision called them the uncircumcision, as we see there in verse 11. And he says it's, they're called that by those which call themselves the circumcision. And so what God had given as a, a sign that they belonged to God, what God had done for them, it became a, a sign of 
religious pride. They put the they put the focus on the physical instead of where it really matters the most, the heart. And Paul points that out by saying in, in verse 11 that that which is made in the flesh by hands. So he's pointing out that though this was important, it was only a physical distinction. And so the difference that God intended to point to the uniqueness of who He is and who the people of God are to be had become a a sign of pride and division. And the Greeks had their own problem with pride. Uh, They saw their culture and language as superior to all others. They called others barbarians. It It was a term that made fun of the way that their foreign language sounded to them. They, they considered these unsophisticated foreigners who were going around babbling bar-bar. So they called them barbarians. They couldn't even speak the Greek language, the language of the gods. Are we prone to the same kind of pride? Uh, taking an element of pride in culture and language is, is not a bad thing, but it's, it's easy to go beyond a healthy sense of um, belonging to divisions and resentment and all of the the things that we see all around the world and, and in our own country. There's a huge cultural and religious barriers so that when the, the church was being established, people were coming to the Lord and church being formed, there's this real danger that the church would be split into these separate groups, especially that of the Jews and the Gentiles. And the New Testament records for us that that reality and and how the Lord dealt with it. We see these same kind of problems today. Our, our circumstances may be different, but the heart of man is still the same. Uh, we must not allow our differences to become barriers to the unity in the body of Christ. Paul is dealing with this problem, and he he writes about the unity that we are to have in Christ. And as I said, he carries this theme for for several uh, verses further because it's such an important theme. Notice how he writes in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. He says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, if you notice in verse 11, he began with this call to remember. And he continues that into verse uh, 2, verse 12, sorry, chapter 2, verse 12. He says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. See, Paul reminds these Gentiles that they were separated from the promise of the Messiah, or the Christ. That's the Greek uh, translation of the, of the same word, Messiah, the, the anointed, the anointed one. And the, the coming of the Messiah was something that the Jews hoped for, they, they looked for. Uh, but the Gentiles 
they didn't know anything about this Messiah. They were not looking for a, a, a Messiah that would come. They, they were outside the camp, we could say, outside the citizenship of Israel. That's the idea there of the commonwealth. They were aliens from that uh, commonwealth of, of Israel. They were strangers to the promises of God, again, referring to the Abrahamic covenant and the other promises that God made to Israel flowing out of that Abrahamic covenant. These covenants of promise that were given to the nation of Israel went beyond just promises to them and in the time that they lived to look forward to the coming of the Messiah. And there's still parts of those promises that will be fulfilled in Christ's second coming as well. But, but Christ is the, is the fulfillment of these promises. And, and he's saying that they were strangers. These Gentiles were strangers. They didn't know about them. They, they're like if you went to a, a foreign land and, and they spoke a different language and a different culture and you just felt out of place. You didn't know what was going on. That's, that's how the Gentiles were as it relates to what the promises of God, God had um, done in and through the nation of Israel. And this last phrase here is probably one of the saddest statements in all of Scripture. He says, having no hope and without God in the world. And we must remember that it's only by God's grace that that's not a, a description of us right now. Because we too at one time were without God. We too at one time were without Christ. And that's the condition of, of many people living around us today. No hope and without God. And it's not just people in remote and hard to reach places of the world that are without hope and without God. It's true of many people here in George in the surrounding areas. It's true of people that's heard the gospel many times and yet have rejected Christ. It, it describes even religious people, people who are trusting in their good works to please God, trusting in baptism, trusting in church membership. No hope without God in the world. You see, we need to remember that our lost condition before God saved us because it will protect us from pride. We mustn't ever get to the thinking that we deserve somehow because of who we are or our culture. It will, remembering our lost condition will help us to have humility. It will help us to have compassion for the lost. It will cause us to appreciate what, what we have now in Christ and live for him. John Newton, you remember him as the author of Amazing Grace. He kept a quote on his desk from Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 15. After he'd become a minister of the gospel, he, he had this, this quote on his desk. And that verse reads, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. You see, John Newton at one time was a slave trader. And there was a time when he himself became a slave. And he didn't want to forget what God had saved him from and out of his hopeless condition without Christ. Well, notice verse 13, where we're also told to remember uh, how we were brought near to God. 
not only remember where we were before our salvation, but remember how we got where we are now in Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Well, if the end of verse 12 was the, one of the saddest statements, this must be one of the most beautiful statements of Scripture. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That, that statement there, he begins again, but now. And, and it's usual for Paul to make this sharp contrast between what we were before salvation and what we are now as believers. We saw it earlier in chapter 2. You remember in verse 4, there where he, he, he begins, he just described in the first three verses our lost condition before, and now he's, he says in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, this difference between Christian and non-Christian is an absolute difference. It's like night and day. It's like white and black. There's no shades of gray with being a Christian. Either you are or you're not. It's an absolute contrast. Now, you may have had different experiences in the way that God worked in your heart to bring you to faith. You've had different backgrounds. Some, some of you have had Christian parents and you, you were brought up in the church. And then there's others that may have not known anything about the Bible or God, just like these Gentiles were that Paul's describing. So you may have had a, experienced a different outward change when you were saved. But the difference between being in Christ and being without Christ is equally great. No matter what your past was like, you see... If you're without Christ, you have no hope. And if you're in Christ, you have been reconciled and brought near to God. And the price that was paid to purchase your redemption is the same. Regardless if before you were considered a moral person or the worst sinner around, the price was the same, the blood of Christ. And so by the death of Christ, we who have trusted Him have been brought near to God because we have a relationship now with God. Can you imagine what that would have meant for these Gentiles, believers, as they think about their situation? They, they, they had seemed so far from God. And even the proselytes to Judaism were kept at a distance in this outer area of the temple. But now in Christ, they are brought near, near to the very throne of God. Even the Jews under the Old Covenant could not approach into the holy place of the temple. It was only the high priest on the Day of Atonement that could enter the Holy of Holies and into the, the presence of God, there where the Ark of the, of the Covenant was, and, and, uh, and go in there and make uh, atonement for the people and for himself. But when Jesus died on the cross, what happened? The that thick curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was torn in two. And because of Christ, we're invited to come boldly, to come with confidence into the very presence of God through our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
What a difference that is. That we are now brought near unto God. Into a relationship with Him through Christ. Notice that Paul again speaks of the blood of Christ. Uh, I read for you earlier there in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. Where he does that as well. He says in Him. This is verse 7 chapter 1. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. You see, the the blood speaks of the price that was paid. It reminds us that the life was given, the life of Christ was given in our place. There's a a movement among many uh, liberal uh, groups to remove the idea of the blood. It's it's not sophisticated enough. It's it's, uh, it's taken out of songs and hymns and and many uh, pastors, you know, will not talk about the blood of Christ. But God wants us to remember the blood that was shed for us. He wants us to remember the terribleness of sin. He wants us to remember the price that was paid, and that Christ suffered to pay the price for our sin. And Hebrews chapter 9 reminds us that under the old covenant, the sacrificial system, that practically everything was cleansed was dedicated, was, was set apart by the sprinkling of blood. And if you go back and read the accounts of the, uh, of the sacrificial system that God gave Moses, you, you'll, be, you'll just be amazed at all the repetition of, of sacrifices, of animals slain, of blood sprinkled and poured. And uh, God wants us to know that there's a price for sin. And Christ paid that price for us. In Hebrews 9.22, he says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And an infinite greater sacrifice than that of bulls and goats and lambs have been made. It's the offer of Christ himself. Hebrews 9.12 says, He entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And so we're called upon to remember, remember our condition, our lostness without Christ, and to remember what we now have in Christ, how he has brought us near through uh, his own death on the cross. And we need to ask the question, has that transformation taken place in your life? Are, Are you in Christ? Have you been brought near by the blood of Christ? And if so, take time to remember. Remember what God has done for you. Think about where you would be right now if the Lord in His mercy and grace had not intervened in your life. Remember so that you don't become lukewarm and indifferent about the things of God. Remember so you don't become proud and judgmental towards others. Remember so you don't lose compassion for the lost. Remember so to as to love, mercy, and walk humbly with God. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us. We read about the Gentiles and how that you extended grace to them. Lord, we realize that we too are Gentiles. We've inherited, uh, been made partakers of such great promises because of your grace. And that's, We have been made near because of Christ. 
and that you've uh, worked in our hearts, Lord, as you've described in chapter two, and you've and you've um, done so much for us. You've forgiven us, and that we can know you and have a relationship with you. Lord, may we rejoice in that today. May it humble us. May it encourage us to live for you and, it, and give us boldness uh, to, to stand for you and to be counted as one who belongs to the Lord, who's set apart unto, unto you. We thank you and praise you, Lord. May it, uh, may it impact us this week in our lives and the way we treat other people. May we remember your mercy and your grace for us. In Jesus' name, amen.